Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. Stephen, let's talk about what's better than Europe. What's more exciting than Europe? Uh, nothing. Sex. Okay, yeah, fine, maybe that. Um, there's lots of stuff going on this week around sex education. So the government has rejected calls to make that compulsory. Um, it's also given a fairly bland response to um, concerns that have been raised about the rates of sexual harassment in schools. I think 71% of girls reported they'd heard language like slut and things like that being used. Um, and this morning, Jeremy Hunt's come up with a plan to stop teens sexting because he's discovered that there is software that can block sexually explicit images uh, and he thinks that this should be rolled out to all teenagers' phones in order to stop them sending pictures of their naughty bits to each other. I mean, has he actually discovered that there is software? Because I wasn't clear from the quote, which I decided to put in full in my uh, morning email, which I don't talk about very much. Um, which called... is more exciting than sex. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, but um, My understanding of it is is that there is software, basically things like um, TinEye, reverse image search, that can find established images right if you you can essentially do kind of train it on a database of sexually explicit images and it can recognize that the problem is that all of those things as as for example facebook has found out it's very hard to distinguish between things that are sexually explicit and things that are not so facebook has got this continual problem for example around nipples so male nipples in the west at least are deemed okay okay totally get them out in the park female nipples ooh, everyone's so crazy now um but obviously people feel very different about people when they're breastfeeding for example and those images end up being censored and people get very angry about them there's a whole problem around the idea of what happens when people do uh trans women do photos of them transitioning at what point do their nipples move from acceptable male nipples to unacceptable female nipples so this stuff is actually really quite hard Never mind the fact that actually he's used sexting in a very narrow way, I guess, to talk about people sending explicit messages of each other, photographs of themselves to each other. Well, there's actually, there's legislation, I think overly draconian legislation around that anyway, in terms of producing child porn. You end up with situations where two teenagers who are sexting each other are technically are committing child porn offences. So my issue with it is, is it does feel like he thinks there's a magic technological fix for a problem that is actually a much structurally broader social one, which is a kind of reverse of the way that Silicon Valley often sees things where they think there's a technological solution to a social problem. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Because I think the thing I find interesting to, you know, to be a kind of old fogey brief. So I think there's a, there's a technological... In my day, we sent pictograms... What are you going to say? Like pictograms of willies to In each other? In my day, <laughs> we sent nudges and that was it. 
What's a nut? Like a poke? On MSN Messenger, right? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah like, and it would make the whole screen shake. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Um, what I, f- I find... So there's obviously... A, there's a socio- there, So I think it's a bit of both, right? Because there's a social problem. However, when I was a teenager at school, people just wouldn't have sent pictures, I think, of their own partners to one another. Like, that feels like a a new and even more like objectifying and degrading way to treat women. That that definitely does feel like an escalation. Um, and I know people to whom that has happened to their their sons as well, right? As a, an explicit image has been passed around. I think this is interesting. I talked to, I did a panel once about sex education. They had a, somebody who runs um, Bish Training, which is one of these independent organisations that goes into schools. And he said, actually, what we find is not so much kids passing around explicit images um, for sort of sexual reasons, but actually for kind of gross out reasons. And also that's that tinged is also with bullying, right? The idea that you get someone to send you a photo of themselves, you know, their own boob or whatever, and then that becomes a way to bullying them. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the the way I think it is partly technological is throughout most of the time I was at, in fact, all the time I was at secondary school, we all had like Nokia 3310s. We kind of didn't graduate to phones which could take photos of any quality until sixth form and then they were really expensive right the only people who had phones which could take decent photos were people who were on ema and were also working you know like you could if you were on ema and not working you couldn't afford it if you were working and not on ema you couldn't but there was like a a small group of you know well remunerated people uh who were doing both in my first year at university we still relied on digital cameras that was a big thing i was really into digital cameras yeah, I mean that's how old I am. But yeah, I agree with you. This is a this is a fundamentally a, diff- a difficult thing to find out where the line is between kind of things have changed since I was young and therefore are bad, and actually we know that there are definitely bad effects happening and that young people are being really hurt by this. Right? I think that's a difficult line to to because yeah. because once you're over the age of twenty five, anything that sort of sixteen year olds do seems alarming and horrifying to you. Yeah, and how much it is just slightly like technology has changed a bit. Because, I mean, I remember, you know, at school, like, when people would, like, post, like, pictures of their holiday snaps on MySpace and instantly, you know, about, like, 400 thirsty year nines would would comment on it, right? And this is kind of the weird thing when I occasionally will do, like, a school visit to just be like, hey, guys, a flight is good thing with Follow me on Twitter. I always emphasize Twitter or indeed my new Facebook profile. And if you need any advice, you can get in touch with me via Twitter, email or Facebook. And then there will always be one or two who will follow me on Instagram, right? (laughs) And they regret it pretty quickly. And after a while, they're just like, I'm really, really tired of these photos of this Amber Rudd looking woman. (laughs) Seriously, now my wife's got glasses. She does like look unnervingly like she's going to start making lists of foreign workers. She's going to deport you. freaking me out. Yeah. Um, But... um, and I click on the thing on the pictures and it's just like, whoa, my first bit of career advice to you is to delete all of these photos because anyone who Googles these publicly available images is not going to get an image of you that you want, you know, want your prospective employers to see. Now... I do think that is a... I mean, that was one of the things that I found really interesting about the election of um, Mary Black, right, who was 20 at the 2015 general election. And I think she was the first MP we've ever had from a generation where there were still tweets from her that said things like, Smirnoff Ice is a drink of the gods. Correct opinion. Um, And, you know, maths is shite. And stuff like that. And and I just think that actually that was a... What was quite interesting about that is obviously that didn't stop her getting elected as an MP. And she just went kind of like, yeah, I was a teenager. I did some teenage tweets. And everyone kind of got over that, which is a better response than I had 
expected that people would have to that kind of thing. I thought there was going to be a real problem with a whole generation whose indiscretions were permanently on record and would therefore be permanently held against them. Well, I think it's, it comes back to that William Gibson thing. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So I think Zuckerberg is right that ultimately the age of privacy will be over and people will become more relaxed and sort of liberal. How about kind of like, oh, you know, we all got horrendously drunk. Oh, yeah, I mean, so one of the things I'd have to deal with when I worked in a shop is sometimes you'd get complaints about the student staff who would on their Facebook go, oh, another day of handling idiots, right? And it's just one of those things where it's like, but you've had to go and find that person's fa- Facebook, right? They didn't call you an idiot to their face. What you've done is you've you've basically searched to see if people are saying bad things about you. You've found it and you're now unhappy about it. I always the- say that to people about Facebook profiles. It's like, just remember that if you die in a bus, like a terrible bus crash or whatever, your Facebook profile is... I mean, the, like, make sure that profile picture is the one where, you know, you were on holiday and you just had severe gastric flu, but we're now over it, so we're half a stone lighter, but still really chipper. Like, that is the one that will be used of you. Oh, so mine is a screenshot of me in the enemy. I was in the enemy once. That's not bad, but they won't use that, so they'll look through your other profile photos. So just make sure there's one of you at your, you know, thinnest and livest. Yeah, Facebook is kind of a weird world for me because I obviously use it for my handy work Facebook profile, which (laughs) you can follow. Yes. Um, But I mostly, because it feels weirdly demonstrative, I'm still like not, not only am I still not married, I don't think my partner really exists. Obviously, we are friends on Facebook, but it's like this weird netherworld where occasionally I just feel like, it feels kind of too late to, like, you're like, how do I introduce this person onto my Facebook profile? I mean, do, do I start by in a relationship? Do I just, like, just go, go straight all, to it? It's complicated. Just, I mean, yeah, what what do you do at that point? Um, I think one of the interesting things, there's been a couple of good books on this subject recently. Um, Sherry Turkle has written about it. Dana Boyd wrote a very good book uh, on teens and, and media. And one of the things that Dana Boyd made was the point she talks about at the very start about going to um, a soccer game, like a high school soccer game in America, and seeing that all the parents were all on their Blackberries as it was because it was five years ago when that was still a thing um, desperate emailing whereas all the teenagers were actually talking to each other and she's saying one of, one of the things that actually teenagers want from technology is, is privacy now I'm old enough to remember the fact that we had one phone line for a while that was both our internet line and our home phone line so there was a kind of constant argument about that my mum would insist on and still does insist on having the phone in the hall actually and I think no no now it's just her and dad at home I think they have actually moved the They've, they've invested in a cordless phone, right? But she would, she would, you know, if you wanted to have a phone call, you had to have it right next to the front door in the track between the kitchen and the and the front room. And and the thing is that what technology has, has offered kids who often go to school, you know, they don't live, they don't pop into each other's houses. They're not allowed to play outside. You know, people don't like seeing young people hanging around on the streets. This has offered them a space that they can spend time together unsupervised and that they feel is is their own. And I think that's a that's not something that's really going to be changed. Even if you did come up with some magic software that could kind of ban texting, it's not going to solve, certainly the problem of bullying, it's not going to solve the problem of sexual harassment, right? Because you don't need any, you only need words in those situations in order to hurt someone else. Yeah. Um, that was a mistake. Um, um, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's why I think the, the other half of what the government has done becomes the problem. 
Um, I mean, obviously, because my mum worked at home, being, you know, being a, being a priest, the phone was in her office, which would be fine if she was, you know, at a funeral or at a wedding or, I mean, the people I'd feel sorry for is you know, when, you know, people who, you know, were interested in me would phone and get like the very clipped tones in which my mum would answer the phone and say, you know, Christchurch Vicarage, how can I help you? And that's why I did so badly among women in my teenage years. Um, but... The flip side of this is... You went to a mixed school. I'm going to have no sympathy whatsoever with your, your teenage... But they were mostly hijabis. <laughs> they, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I have a problem with that, but... But they weren't interested in you. Is that what you're saying? Or are you saying that you hate Muslim people? Cause I'm saying they weren't really interested in me. Yeah, that, this is... This is <laughs> so this is probably going to be my last podcast uh, before I'm inevitably sacked, but... Um, no, like in my school, it was kind of weird, right? And then you kind of had, you kind of had like informal but widely recognised. Um, then you could have friends of the same sex who were in like one of the other like ethnic blocks, right? Yeah. So you could have like friends in the white working class. You could have friends in like the Bengalis kids, right? Yeah. You could have friends in like the nebulous mixed race odds and sods, which is obviously the girl. You could have friends, although in practice I didn't, uh, in like the like the like properly black kids who made it very clear that the mixed race kids were not properly black but you couldn't really date inside those groups right which meant then demographically really we had no choice but to go to hackney to um to, <laughs> i was really to not find... expecting that to be the end of that so story. one of the things i find slightly weird about like the kids these days is occasionally on my bus because obviously i now live in hackney i'll like see like little kids like yeah, like who you think are really young, and then they're like talking like, "Oh, you're actually in secondary school," saying things like, "Oh, Slaggerston School for Girls," and they're just like, "Wow, Haggerston has gentrified so much," but they still call the local school Slaggerston. But the point is, is that sex education is the the missing part of 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 this uh, problem, this puzzle, right? And if the government had compulsory high quality sex and relationships education in primary school, at a point when people wouldn't be giggling and when people were like, oh, you know, some of you will enter puberty, people wouldn't be yelling, Jaden already has, <laughs> you know, and, and all of the kind of things that people do do in secondary school during yeah. sex ed, then you wouldn't have the problem of I'm just going to butt in here to say that no one has more trauma associated with sex education than muggins whose biology teacher was wait for it her mother oh god i'm so sorry yeah 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 had some sex ed there from my mum so literally it was like yeah your mum's had sex well yes yes <laughs> Seth, yes there's, there's five of us kids so yes that's true oh god i'm so sorry yeah did she like do the banana thing no, we uh, no, um, because there was we. I went to a Catholic school, and there was a complaint in the previous years that um, some parent wrote in saying something like, "quotes They were knee deep in condoms in the chapel," <laughs> and uh, after that, condom demonstrations were were banned. So that was fine. Um, but yeah, so we just I, we we very much had a we did have that kind of see no evil, shag no evil approach. That if we just if people just never mentioned that it was really a possibility, then probably no one would have sex, yeah. which didn't. As far as I understand it, work. But yeah, but the sad and and particularly cowardly thing I think about the stance the government is taking on this right is that if you believe the polls, and obviously I know some of our listeners don't, obviously I do. If you believe the polls, Theresa May is on course for a landslide victory over Jeremy Corbyn, right? And in, if you don't believe the polls, I don't think that the reason why Jeremy Corbyn is going to beat Theresa May is because of his because of his illiberal stance on sex ed. My instinct, he's probably not going <laughs> to outflank her on the right on that one. Yeah. I think this is like actually one of the few times when, when the government could just go, oh, look, 
some parents will get a bit angry because they think they're teaching my five-year-old how to screw. But but it's it not is going to change a, anyone's voting. Yeah, it isn't. It is an opportunity to do something. Actually, well, I also good. think they could do it by focusing more on relationships education. Because actually, I think that what's the bit that's missing is about teaching around consent, right? Teaching around bullying, teaching mm. about what you have a you know your rights as a person and what you have a right to do to other people. And actually, just sex is really just the vector for that. But actually, the th- the stuff that's really hard is interpersonal relationships. And of course, children find that difficult because they're still their personalities are still developing, their boundaries are still developing, their sense of who they are. Still developing. And teenagers are just horrible to each other, you know. Like it's one of those things when you look back on like your relationships as a teenager, you're just like, oh god, that was a that was a rogue move. But also, you just don't understand uh, other people very well. Yeah. And actually, as a teenager, you're very selfish, aren't you? Right? You really everything is happening through the prism of like your own personal drama in which you cast yourself in the leading role, or at least my, mine mine was. Um, that, yeah, so I think this is really... And also, I think the, the hope I have about this is that, you know, the Women Equalities Committee is led by Maria Miller, who's a former Tory cabinet minister. Um, you know, she is a, a Tory. I mean, she is pretty Christian-friendly, as far as I say, if not from that Christian caucus, I'm not sure. But she's certainly... I think she's one of the stealth Christians. But you know what I mean? Yeah. She's certainly not from the kind of... She's not... No one would ever paint her as an ultra kind of liberal, loosey-goosey kind but, of... But, I mean, I think the thing is, like, there are lots of... I mean, yeah, there is a startlingly high... Um, proportion of very quiet Christians in in both parliamentary parties, but a lot of them are incredibly sensible about sex ed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, cynically, I think with Maria Miller, isn't it? It is all about um, rebuilding her reputation, so that the first line of her obituary isn't resigned in an expenses scandal. I think that's definitely true in regards to the transgender equality inquiry, which there is a debate about this week as well. I think there is a desire to rebrand, I think, her, yeah, as you say, and to and to have a kind of second act in her parliamentary um, career. But there are some, yeah, there's some really interesting people on, like Jess Phillips on that um, committee. And actually, genuinely, generally, this is an issue in which we've got a piece going up from Girl Guiding UK. You know, they have done that thing that people will always say to do in uh, campaigning is build a coalition of people who are seen as trusted and non-partisan, right? And someone like Girl Guiding and you know, people like the Women's Institute, you want to get those kind of people on board who are just seen as being pretty sensible, you know, down the line, and then present this as the kind of sensible solution. This isn't, we're teaching your five-year-olds, as you say, to like, what you know, where the clitoris is in order that they can kind of go off and have wild sex. We're of teaching... course they're going to know. They've got the Discovery Channel, don't they? <laughs> we're nothing but mammals. Um... <laughs> God, <laughs> that's a song I haven't thought about for a really long time. Um, but yeah, um, uh, we'd be really interested to hear from listeners who work in schools or have been to schools more recently than um, elderly Bush and I. So um, do uh, write in. You can follow Stephen on Facebook. I don't know if he's mentioned that at all. Uh, obviously, he's got an email too. Um, or you can find us both on Twitter. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So this week we caught a potential glimpse of the government's thinking on on Brexit from um, an awkwardly placed uh, paper carried by an aide to a Brexit minister. And that actually pretty much confirmed what we already suspect, which is that 
the government doesn't want to remain in the single market so that it can regain uh, control of, of free movements. It also, David Davis doesn't want a transitional arrangement, it, which would obviously mean the UK plunging off what Theresa May herself called in her recent CBI speech, the, the cliff edge. And that, I think, is going to become one of the defining battles. The Chancellor, Philip Hammond, very much does want a transitional arrangement. That would be much better for the, for the economy. Cabinet ministers such as Amber Rudd and, and Damien Green share that view. But the Brexiteers, David Davis, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson, fear that that sort of arrangement risks actually uh, strangling Brexit at, at birth. Yeah, so their fear is, as, as the member says, you know, Whitehall will try to hold on to it. Yeah. Um, of course, there's another element to this, which is the uh, European Union and what the 27 nations of the EU uh, want. They're very much pro a transitional deal, aren't they? Yes, they are. Um, and as you say, we talk a lot about what um, about what the, the UK wants, or far less about what the, the EU wants. But um, ultimately... They don't want a deal which um, appears generous to Britain because they need to deal with their own insurgent flank. In France, obviously, Marine Le Pen's almost certain to reach the second round. And if if it appears that the UK has actually got off quite quite lightly, the risk is that gives an incentive to their own Eurosceptics to um, to advance. The other problem for the government's Brexit strategy is uh, the ongoing legal battles over Article 50. The expectation is certainly they will lose the Supreme Court case. But there's now this new thing that the Scottish uh, government may need to vote on it as well. Yes, I mean, this is this just shows that we're barely even beginning to comprehend how legally complex Brexit is. And if they lose the Supreme Court, court uh, decision, which is uh, which almost everyone expects, it should be relatively easy for them to bring forward a short bill uh, to trigger Article 50. Labour have pledged to vote for it. They've got the votes they need there. Um, the snag could come uh, in terms of any amendments which are placed on, <clears throat> on the single market. Uh, there are some Conservative MPs, such as Anna Subri, Dominic Grieve, who, who would vote for those amendments. And then, as you say, the, the Scottish and Welsh dimension... Uh, and the Northern Ireland dimension, um, it's that is potentially far, far more problematic than um, than dealing with uh, Parliament. Yeah, I mean, let's say for a moment that they do have to get it through uh, the devolved assemblies. Wales is fairly easy. There's a majority there. Is there any way they would be able to get it through uh, the Scottish Parliament? No, no. I mean, it's it, the SNP are, are absolutely un unequivocal on that point and if they were to give way then you'd imagine it would only be in order to strengthen their case for independence um, because if, if they are if they can say we're being pulled out of the eu and likely the single market against our will that's a pretty strong case for for another referendum yeah and um in terms of the ECJ, which obviously is one of the few red lines that Theresa May has said publicly is that we won't be subject to the ECJ, there's a problem with that now too, isn't there? That if you have a deal with the EU, you have to have some kind of 
legal mechanism when you're trading with someone to have an arbitration. What is the government saying about that? Does it have a position, seeing as it doesn't want the ECJ? Does it therefore are they therefore saying they want EFTA? What is going on with that? Yes, well, so Theresa May at the conference uh, signaled very strongly that she was heading for hard Brexit, as it's become known, by saying one we're going to end the supremacy of the European Court of Justice, and two, we're going to control free movement. Um, but they haven't ruled out a transitional arrangement. Um, they've never actually definitively said, we, we want to leave the single market. But it's hard to square that with, with the commitments I mentioned before. But at the moment, they're saying so little that, and this is what really alarms people who see, see the government, civil servants, uh, MPs, businesses, is, is is they're not clear what's the what the plan is, uh, or if there is a plan, if it's it's a bad one. We may get what's being described as high level principles before the end of the year. Um, so there were some Tory rebels, uh, such as Nikki Morgan and Anna Subri, who said we will vote for Article Fifty on the condition that you start to spell out what what Brexit means. Right. So we may finally find out what Brexit means Brexit means. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, a city metric podcast where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado-Perez. And Neil Codlin, keyboard player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And next up, we have a section in which I and Anoush go to the Garrick Theatre to interview James Graham the writer behind This House. Hi, I'm James Graham and I'm the writer of This House. Tell us a bit about what This House is about and why um, it's having a sort of political renaissance today. So uh, the play is, ostensibly, it's about um, a period in the 1970s when we had a hung parliament and uh, through the research I did, it uh, was quite clear to me that it it was a, a time... Uh, when the Labour government had a minority, not enough members to pass any legislation on their own, that there was an incredible amount of drama and tension and chaos uh, in that building, uh, unlike anything I think we've seen before or since. Um, so, it, you know, it's a great story, but I think the reason why hopefully it's still relevant um, now, even though we don't have a hung parliament anymore, is it actually just um, tries to dissect um, something we take for granted, which is our, our parliamentary democracy and the processes and the systems about how it works from the big grand stuff, who we elect and why we elect them, but also to the sort of stupid mundane day-to-day stuff. How do you get your members through the lobby? What's the process of whipping? Um, how do you pay? What happens if you can't get to the vote? What happens if um, a piece of legislation gets delayed? That, that day-to-day stuff, I think, um, hopefully people enjoy because you don't, don't get to normally see that stuff in political drama. And there are references in the play, for example, to the EU referendum, to militant, to Labour's troubles. Um, do you find that audiences are reacting differently to your play than when it was on the first time round? They are reacting differently, yeah. And as you say, when, when it first was on in um, 2012, the idea of a European referendum was, was something that was reserved for, for loonies and extremists. And um, the Scottish referendum, I think, had been assumed to, to be put to bed. Um, so... The fact that we, we are reviving this in an age when Brexit has happened and populist extremist figures are, 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 are now running our politics, 
I think to to look at a, an, an age of extreme like the 1970s does feel very relevant um, and probably more believable. I am noticing that it's still... Um, I was very grateful and it felt very lucky that it always got a very vocal response at the National Theatre to the comedy. People always seem to enjoy it. But I think um, there's a double-edged nature to the laughter now. I think it, people hopefully are still finding it entertaining, um, the farce elements of it. But I think it feels more serious. I think people are naturally angrier and more disappointed in the system and the people running it. So I think the response to it is laced with a, with a cynicism and a disappointment that wasn't there before. Were there any references in it or parts that you want, you were tempted to rewrite in order to make them poignant in terms of what's happening now? Yeah, I went on like a whole emotional journey as a playwright. Like, do I, because the, the parallels are so stark, whether it be the referendums, whether it be what's happening in the Labour Party, the, the fight between left and right, the leadership battles that happened um, in the Conservative Party, all those things that have happened recently. I thought, do I, do I redesign them and pu- push them out a bit more so that it feels more relevant? But actually, I, I just realised I didn't. I didn't need to. That that feels too easy. It feels too knowing. And actually, it patronises your audience to, to draw those lines too thickly. I think an audience wants to to project onto it its own its own politics and its own viewpoints, and you should let them do that. As a political playwright, do you try and stay neutral when you do interviews, for example, or when you talk about politics? Do you try not to give too much away about what your beliefs are? Well, obviously, I'm I'm a human and I'm not neutral. I feel and um, I, I feel increasingly actually. Um, very specific feelings towards particular parties and individuals. I do think I have a responsibility to, to be fair, though, to be reasonable and to not misinterpret people's opinions, to not exaggerate policies or people. So I guess it, it depends on the play. It's about what you, why you're writing that um, particular story. And for me, this house, the story is not about me projecting onto it or preaching um, any particular ideology. It's a look, a neutral look at those people and that system's um, to try and work out if it's working or not. And so when you see um, Donald Trump winning an election and Brexit happening, do, do you ever feel tempted to sort of break that and think, I want to write it more? Uh, well, I mean, even though, even though I just said I'm impartial, I, was, I, I don't mind saying that when Donald Trump won, I wanted to rip my own face off. So that's, uh, so, you know, we're living through the most incredible times. Um, it all feels very uncertain and unknowable and, and uh, often very uh, dangerous. So um, I think we all just have to step up, all of us, um, you guys, journalists, me, playwrights, writers, actors, artists, anyone, um, to make sure that we are that we are appropriately and adequately representing these events and people's views and asking questions and engaging in a national conversation. Um, when you look at political events, do you look at them differently because you have, because you've written about ones in the past? Does part of you kind of start filleting in four plays, as it were? I think that's probably true. I, I suppose I, wh- why I enjoy history um, and I think what it's given me as a perspective on events when they happen is I do enjoy seeing events, past, present and, and future, in the context of a narrative, in the context of, a, of a, an island story or a global story. So, it, uh, you know, the referendum, to me, I looked at it uh, both through the urgency of what was happening that moment, that decision, but also in the context of a hundred years of, of British politics, and I, that's how I like to make my views and assessments. As you know, but one of the depressing things about history, I think, is the awareness that we we sometimes get trapped in these perpetual cycles where we're unable to 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 break out of them. So uh, that, you know, there is a depressing side to looking back at the 1970s when we were asking the same questions, making the same mistakes, 
um, and un- unable in a way to, to, to pull ourselves out of, out of these self-defeating ruts that we get stuck in sometimes. You write about real characters in lots of your plays and in The Coalition as well, the television series. What's the challenge of doing that? Well, in a way, you know, in a way, if I'm honest, it's a bit easier than having to make people up from, from the start. You get given a whole life story, a whole backstory. But the difficulty, I suppose, is how you uh, do the necessary work you have to do as a playwright, which is to bend them into a, a role that has to serve a function in your story. I always think drama gives to, to um, life what life doesn't have, which is structure and meaning. Uh, in life, random things happen because random things happen. In plays and TV drama, um, things happen because... They mean something, they represent something, they're saying something about the human condition. So you have to use as pawns sometimes real people to serve the function of what you want to talk about. But I think it is possible to do that and still stay truthful to their biography, to their attitude, to, to the essence of what they feel and what they represent. Have you ever had any complaints from politicians about how you've represented them? Touchwood, not yet. Um, I remember Paddy Ashdown in coalition, really liked the drama and thought it was very fair. I think he thought the actor playing him was a bit, too, a bit slightly too old for him, um, <laughs> and that probably was true. Um, so, you know, sometimes people get obsessed about the um, the physical side of things or um, even the fashion side of things. People came to this house talking about I would never have them shoes or my blazer was much smarter than that. Um, oh, I wouldn't smoke in the bar, whatever. So it's, it's mainly the superficial stuff, but touch words so far, no one's ever come to me to say um, I haven't at least try to fairly represent that character. This house was a very brave pitch for a, a subject for a play. Um, uh, how did that happen, as it were? I think every every step of the way through, I always expected it to start or to end. So I, I'd always been entertained by this story uh, before um, the election of 2010 when we had another hung parliament. I'd always been... Um, completely seduced and in awe of a story that ends essentially with history changing on one single vote, one single person not being there in the vote of no confidence um, that led to Thatcher's arrival in Downing Street. So that stuff has always been great. But I, I suppose when I saw the election results on in May 2010, I, I tried to pluck up the courage to go into the National Theatre, a place I'd never had a play on before, never imagined would ever let me have a play on, um, and knock on the door and say, could I have a go at this? Um, I expected them to say no, that it's that I was too young or that it was too big. Um, they didn't. But then when I wrote my play, and the first draft I remember was about 120 pages long, so that's probably about three and a half to four hours worth of stage time, that they would have gone, this is crazy, it was too long, but they didn't. And so, and then you get to opening night and you don't quite know how you've got there. So um, I felt very lucky, but you don't work in isolation. You work, uh, you know, the director, Jeremy Herring, the literary staff at the National, the actors who put it all together and make sense of it for you in the rehearsal room, the designers, Ray Smith, who managed to build the House of Commons in the Cottesloe Theatre first and foremost, which I think really captured people's imagination. All that stuff is, um, is uh, I just feel very grateful and lucky for. And as a dramatist of political crises, you must have quite a lot of um, things that you'd like to do future work on now. Is that, uh, do you have any ideas of what you'd like to cover? I mean, God, I know. It's... Uh... Where do you even start? I, I think, yeah, of course, I absolutely want to be spending the next five, ten years of my life trying to unpick the things that have happened in the past 12 months and making sense of what that means about who we are as a people and as a country and what it means about where we're going. I don't know what that would be. I don't know what that would look like. Um, I, I, I think there's normally two waves of, of artistic responses to events. There's the immediate urgent response, which often feels a bit journalistic, so verbatim theatre and interviews and and 
dramatic reenactments of events, um, which are great and have a huge value because I think we should feel like theatre is responding to, to events quickly. But then the more exciting um, version, I think, is that things are going to happen in the next three or four years when we have a bit more perspective and um, we, can, we can step back and, and take a temperature of why that thing happened and what that says about who we are. Thank you very much, James. And we urge all of our listeners to go and see this house. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a little feature we call You Ask Us. <laughs> Indeed. Um, <laughs> You're just going to pretend that didn't happen. Yeah. What, what have people asked us? Um, of course, we should say that everyone can ask us stuff on at Stephen KB or at Helen Lewis or drop us an email. We'd like to hear from people. It makes yeah. makes this job worthwhile. You know? This question actually has come via Facebook. Um, Lucy asks, who do you think is presently the most influential person in the British government and why? This is going to be a very, what seems a crushingly banal answer, but I, I mean, I would say Theresa May. I mean, it is just unequivocally, she is a power hoarder. She hates delegation. She works, you know, enormously long hours every day. And I think that one of the things that's beginning to happen, actually, is there's you're beginning to hear the first stirrings of unrest from civil servants, from junior ministers, and actually from the lobby about the fact that she's just got too tight a, a grip on everything. I mean, you know, Philip Hammond's autumn statement wasn't a particularly politically interesting one. I think that reflects her incredible um, influence. And so the other, I think the other two people that are important to that is her two chiefs of staff, Fiona Hill uh, and Nick Timothy. And they're both influential in kind of different ways around her messaging on immigration. I think you see the hand of uh, Fiona Hill in that one. And Nick Timothy, who's... Um, who came from the New Schools Network. So he's got very... I mean, the grammar schools policies has got his fingerprints all over it, right? But I think that although she... Um, I think one of the recent profiles says that she's taken the kind of sofa, the informal sofa out of Downing Street and it's got a kind of table in, and this is her sort of saying that, you know, she's not going to run this kind of kitchen cabinet type government. But she's not... That, that shouldn't be a mistaken for she's going to run a kind of much more open, transparent, you know, minister-led government. Actually, I think David Cameron was much more willing to... To give people their head sometimes dis- disastrously as in the case of I think I mentioned before on the podcast you know Andrew Lansley coming back with this 900 page NHS bill that no one understood or had read and then them feeling that they had to kind of put it through yeah um so I'd be inclined to agree with Theresa May but merely to be contrary I'm going to offer up go on then Brendan O'Neill who are you going to say another figure Philip Hammond right which actually uh, a lot has been written about P.Ham the the P dot ham the the treasury is weaker now the age of the imperial treasury is over in fact I've written some of those things myself but um but I now disagree with them utterly one of the things which I thought was striking about the autumn statement is actually there was not an awful lot of tax of anything for people who are just managing yeah uh, it was a classic conservative budget a bung for higher rate earners dual dual earner couples and boomers the Conservative Coalition, right? Yeah. It was a, a classically conservative budget. In terms of... So the government is... There are a lot of loud and sometimes terrifyingly stupid noises about 
our Brexit negotiation coming out of the government. And we shouldn't underestimate the damage those noises do to our ability to get a good Brexit deal. But in terms of things the government is actually saying and not ruling out, mm-hmm. actually the Philip Hammond we didn't vote to be poorer and less secure is clearly more influential than we think. Uh, he obviously came on board with her campaign very early. He was the only big beast to explicitly back someone. He is basically unsackable. Yeah, I think Philip Hammond is a, a bigger and more influential figure than we give him credit for. How do you think the relationship between the two of them is going? Because I think he's seen as the kind of hope for the Remainers, the hope for the even the kind of some of the more liberal Brexiteers, that he's their kind of, you know, windbreak against the kind of more gung-ho Brexit consensus, right? How... but. I think, you know, Theresa May's game has always been to be sort of loftily above all that sort of what she sees as partisan squabbling. But how do you think she feels about Philip Hammond kind of being anointed into that role? I think that she n- knew that that would be a factor when, when, when the government was created. She understood, you know, the gamble she's made with the three Brexiteers was this idea that they could be contained within the within the tent. And there's a feeling in Downing Street and they actually think that David Davis is doing the work, he's trying to get to know how, you know, he has a slight sledgehammer approach which irritates people in Brussels and Whitehall, but he is actually doing the the job. They also feel that for, although Boris obviously has still has his eyes on the main prize, Boris knows that, that for him to do well, Theresa May has to do well. I think there are some more doubts about Liam, Liam Fox. Fox. No, you surprise me. Um, but um, they kind of knew that Philip Hammond would become that figure but we forget them the two of them mostly would align on most of the eu issues you you couldn't just come up with something that would be immediately vetoed Mm. by merkel and they both got that free movement did matter to the eu etc etc um and i think he's quite a useful lightning rod for her one of the reasons why he's unsackable isn't if he he went away then suddenly she would have to admit oh actually i don't think that we should knacker the economy for this for this brexit idea Okay. Well, there we go. That was probably a, a a less interesting answer than it might have been at other points during the last 10 years. But hopefully our reasoning was sufficiently interesting that you feel satisfied, Lucy, with uh, having asked us a question. And uh, we'll be back with more next week. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. (laughs) 